Well, as was said, my name is George, um, and I'm going to move this guy back here. And um, it really is uh, an honor and a privilege to be here with you guys this morning. I'm sure every guest preacher that comes here says, it's an honor to be here with you today, but uh, for me, that's especially true. And that's um, really because my Christian walk, my, my faith in Jesus began with what would one day become Livingstone's church. And so it's an honor and a privilege because it's like I've been part of this church. I was saved through this church and been part of it since day one. And day one was back in August of 1998. See, I had a, a friend of mine who I had met through the party scene, and uh, he basically had an encounter with Jesus where he got saved in a jail cell. And out of coming out of jail, he realized he needed to get right with God. He needed to turn his heart over to Jesus. And in doing so, he, he also realized, I have some friends, some pothead friends, who would never, ever step foot in a church. I've got to go share Jesus with them. And thankfully, I was one of those pothead friends. <laughs> and so he came to me and was like, hey, can we, we I want to do a Bible study. And you're the only one with an apartment. I just graduated high school. And I was the only one of our friends that had an apartment. And they're like, can we do Bible study in your apartment? And we're just going to read the Bible. And I'm going to do my best to talk about what it's saying and answer any questions you might have. Now, I had been raised Catholic, so... Um, my personal experience as a Catholic was that I was never really encouraged to read the Bible for myself, but I always had a curiosity about it. Like, what's in that thing? What, like, what's this all about? And here now I had a friend who was saying, I just want to open it up and go chapter by chapter, verse by verse with, with you and some of your friends, some of my friends, and just see what it's saying. And, and as a result, that began this Bible study that would one day grow into the college group of a church we were all attending. And that college group would accidentally be planted as a church within that church, and we would call it Living Stones. That happened in 2000. And it, um, we, we the, I'm sorry, the college group phase started in 2000, and then we planted the church within a church in Northwest Reno in 2003. And so again, when I say it's really an honor and a privilege, I never in my wildest dreams would thought that one, I would be a pastor, two, that we would have a church spread out all across northern Nevada with six locations, and that what we began on day one in August of 1998, we would still be doing to this day, and that I would be in Fernley, Nevada, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Bible with you all. So it's a real just testament to how good God is that y'all are here. Like, this exists. God is, is making disciples. He's drawing people to himself, and it's centered around the Word, and the Word is centered around pointing to Jesus and all that he's done. And so, as a church, we're really excited to be around Jesus and his Word. And isn't it so necessary right now? Like, this, as I was studying this text, I was like, God, your, your timing is perfect. We need this text for where we're at in our culture today with the fears around the coronavirus. And so um, as we dive in, you know, I just want to 
like share a little bit more about myself. Um, that I met my wife um, in in 2002 through that Bible study, and um, right about the time we moved to the church, we uh, my wife Jamie and I got married in 2003, and then in the years to come, those devilishly handsome little children right there. Um, Maddox is my oldest, Liam is my middle child, and then um, Delano, he's, he's my little mini-me, and um, so that's my family. And again, they're 13, 10, and about to turn eight years old. And uh, so they're, they were wanting to come with me today, but with, we, we thought we were going to get like six feet of snow in Reno, <laughs> so they sent me on my own. But um, really, you know, again, I'm just thankful to be here with you guys, and so what we're going to do is we're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word, through this book, as we've done thus far. So if you would, look with me at chapter 2, verse 5. And it begins, now, okay, stop right there. Um, so we're stopping at the first word. Now, some of your translations might say the word for, uh, mine says now. And what the author's trying to do is, is basically, he's like coming back to an original argument that he set up. He's like, all right, now, now, now back to what I was saying is, is another way to think of it. And what, if we think about it, if you've been with um, the Fernley Church since the beginning of this series, uh, what we've seen is the author of Hebrews is making the case that Jesus is better than anything out there. That he is God's direct like, representation. Like if you want to know what God is like, the author of Hebrews is saying, look to Jesus. Don't look to angels, don't look to your traditions, don't, don't, because what was happening is that they were getting complacent in their faith. They're like, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus, but um, why, why is it so hard? Why, why are things happening? Where is he? Where did he go? Maybe, maybe I need to go back to my old faith system. And isn't that so true of us, like as people? We, we revert back to what's familiar. And so he, he gives them a warning, what we saw last week. Don't drift. Drifting is dangerous. Don't abandon or stray away from the God who has saved you. And so now he's like, okay, now, back to what I was saying. And what he was saying before that is that Jesus is better than angels. He's not an angel. He's God in, in the flesh. And so he points out, he says, Now, it was, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. What does that mean? It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. I began like kind of just mulling that over and thinking about that. And the, the word subjected, you, we see it a few times in our, in our text here today. Like, what does it mean to be subjected to someone or something? Like, if I were a king and I'd say, you all are my royal subjects, which you're not, I'm not trying to say that. But that, that, that means authority, control, dominion, right? So when we think about this, it says it was not to angels that God subjected the world was, 
past tense. It was, it was not to angels that God was planning to subject the world to come. See, angels, as, we, as far as we know, are, were God's first created beings. And then he created the, the, you know, Genesis 1, right? The planets and the moon and the stars and the plants and the animals and ultimately us. And what do we see in the opening, in the first chapter of Genesis chapter 1? It says, God is speaking, God is a trinity, God in his, the, his community of himself, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over everything that creeps along the earth. And so then he creates Adam. And he gives him a charge. And he tells him in Genesis 1.28, he says, Be fruitful and do what? Multiply, spread, expand the dominion. He says, Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the birds of the heaven and over everything that moves on the earth. So this dominion that God has, he entrusts to Adam. And we all know that lasted for a long time, right? But that was the original design. Think about it this way. In Psalm 115.16, it'll be up on the screen. It says, the heavens are the, Lord, are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. Now, with that in mind, again, this is what, what the, the author of Hebrews is trying to bring us to this train of thought. He's like, think about this. It wasn't the angels that God subjected the world to come, but to mankind. God put mankind in dominion over the earth. But like I said, that didn't last too long, right? We, we abdicated our authority. We handed over the keys who do we hand it over to? Satan. He came to Adam and Eve as a tempting serpent, right? Causing them to doubt what God had said. Causing them to disbelieve that God had their best intentions in mind. And so as a result, mankind fell. And that's why when we see in the pages of the, New, of the New Testament, one of the terms or phrases for Satan and his, and his uh, demonic followers or the, the angels that would become e demons, it's, it calls them the rulers and the prince of the power of the air. So, in other words, this creation that was supposed to be subjected to humans has now been handed over to Jesus, or not to Jesus, to Satan. Which then, if you think about it, what happened during Jesus' temptation? The devil came to him, right? And when you think about, like, the devil says some pretty audacious things. Look at Luke chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. It says, And the devil took him up, this is during the temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. See, we handed over the keys. 
said, you, you be in charge of this world. And it was never, this, the author of Hebrews is trying to say, it was not to angels. Like, Satan is a fallen angel. It was not to angels that God intended the world to be subjected to. So then in verse 6 in Hebrews, when he says, it's been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, I don't think that the author of Hebrews doesn't know where this is coming from. We've already seen he clearly knows his Old Testament. In other words, he's, he's saying, hey, guys, y'all know Psalm 8. That's where that, he's quoting that from. Y'all, he, and he's saying this to his audience. You, also, you guys know where I'm, what I'm talking about. Psalm 8, remember, King David, and King David was saying, like, he was looking at the, the heavens, the stars, the fingerwork of God, and, and he's pondering, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And so, picture it, like King David. This is, it was probably written, Psalm 8 was probably written when he was still a shepherd boy out in the open field, in the open country, tending to his flocks, just staring up at the vastness of the night sky. Have you ever done that? I'm sure you guys are able to see the stars way more brilliantly out here than we are back, at, back in Reno, right? And isn't, isn't that, don't, don't you get a sense of awe of who God is when you see something grand, when you see something spectacular, when you're like, whoa, and when you think about how, God, you, you created all of that, you're in charge of all of that, who am I that you even know me? Who am I that you would even care for me? So that, that, that's kind of the, the heart behind what Psalm 8 is saying. And the author of Hebrews is trying to bring us on this train of thought when he's saying, okay, you have put all things under subjection to his feet. And he's thinking about that psalm. And he's thinking, wait a second. We, look at the end of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Like the author of Hebrews is saying, wait a second, what's What's going on? God, your intention was for man to have rule and authority over this world, but it's clear that we've handed over the keys. So what happens to Psalm 8? What do we do with Psalm 8? I can almost feel like the author of Hebrews is trying to ask that question. Like, how do we make sense of this? Since mankind is no longer in control since we see the world around us, the brokenness, right? This, this coronavirus has produced just all kinds of fears and anxieties, has it not? Where we are scrambling to, get, to make sure me and mine get ours, and at the end of the day, 
what we're fundamentally doing is we're hedging our bet. We're saying, yeah, God, I, I know you're in control. I trust you, but I'm also, you know, this is freaking me out. So I need to protect me and mine. And when we look at how just everything that's happening, everything we're reading in the news, it doesn't seem like God is in charge, right? Like that's the fundamental question that we all wrestle with. Is he there? Is he good? Does he care? Well, Scripture seems to see, say that, yes, he does care. He, does, he is aware of what's going on. He's not powerless. But when we're in that place where we're like, ah, I just don't know, that's when we scramble. I, I'm a kind of person that hates looking at the news because every time I do, it bums me out. This is before the coronavirus. But what I've found myself doing is about every 30 minutes or so, I'm looking. What, what's, what's, the, what's the latest? What's, what's going on now? Why, why do I and others do that? Why do we do that? Well, I think as I've, I've thought about this, it's like information is a form of control. Information is power. Like if I can at least know what's coming at me, I can brace myself. Yes, I believe in God. Yes, I trust God is there. Yes, I believe he's going to protect me. But is he? I should maybe, it's getting kind of crazy out there. Maybe I need to become a doomsday prepper. Oh, shoot, it's too late. I waited too long. <laughs> right? No more toilet paper. <laughs> See, we have this deep fear of the unknown. We have this deep fear of death. Jump ahead with me real quick, a couple verses, to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Middle of verse 14. It says that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This coronavirus has really done that to me, to all of us. It's, it's trying to subject us to slavery. It's trying to use fear tactics to cause me to be just all locked up inside, freaking out. And, and that's, that's, that's natural within us, is it not? To fear death? Last September, um, it was a Saturday morning. My youngest son, Delano, he woke up not, really not feeling well like couldn't move. He just had to lay there. And he spent all day Saturday just laying down in tons of pain. All night he was awake. We were awake with him. 
while my wife was awake with him. I, I had to work the next day. So, <laughs> um, and the next morning, you know, we um, we kind of decide, all right, let's take him to the doctor and, and see what they say. And so then the doctor says, you know, it, I think he has appendicitis. Get him to the get him to the ER now. So she called ahead and my wife drove him down and and then um, so I left work, left the church and drove home to pick up my older two boys. And I remember on the drive home just thinking, God, please don't don't take my son. Now, in that moment, I wanted to think like it's just appendicitis. This happens all the time. It's a simple, you know, surgery in and out or whatever. But that didn't subside my fear for my little boy. I, w- I felt myself being tempted to say, God, where are you? Why is this happening? Don't you dare take my boy from me. That, that, that was a real temptation I was, I was fighting with and struggling with. And I found myself just realizing, God, I found myself being reminded of the truth. That God, you love him more than I love him. It was, it was, a, it was truth like that that allowed me to pray prayers like, God, he's yours. Whatever you, whatever you do with him, you're good. And I remember as I picked up my boys and went to the hospital and we're there and we're just seeing him, you know, laying down. He's panicked and they begin, they, they plan his surgery for later that afternoon and they administer antibiotics in him and he had an allergic reaction to antibiotics. All of a sudden he couldn't breathe. So now doctors and nurses are rushing in and, and, and he he just looks up and he asks the doctor, am I going to die? And he's looking at us, Are, am I going to die? And obviously we're putting on a strong face. We're trying to be, you know, nobody, you're fine. You're going you're gonna to die. But in, in the back of my mind, there is that reality. Death scares all of us, terrifies us. And we have, a, we have a choice in that moment when we're faced with the reality of loss, death, suffering. Am I going to scramble to protect myself? Am I going to scramble to collect information so that I don't fear? Like, or am I going to fix my eyes on Jesus? Like, that's really the only thing that alleviates those deep fears. Is, and that's really the main point that I want to take away out of this text as we continue to study it, is that we need to fix our eyes on who's in charge. And if we could just leave that slide up for a little while. Because I just really, as, as we look through the rest of this text, I think it's critical that we see that, that that's what's necessary 
that in light of whatever the next couple weeks unfold for us as a society, you're either going to try and resolve your fear on your own by scrambling to hoard or scrambling for information or trying to, you know, distance yourself from, from, from everyone because they got the cooties, right? Like, that's a reality of our reaction, what we're going to be tempted to do. But no matter how much we try to insulate ourselves, no matter how much we try to protect ourselves, we will never resolve that fear on our own. In other words, there's no amount of prepping or planning you can do that's going to make that fear go away. But what will? What I'm trying to get at is what will actually do the thing of resolving that fear? And Scripture's pretty clear that we are to fear not because God is with us. I've heard it said that that command to fear not is in the Bible 366 times. I've never verified that fact, but I like it. 366 times. One for every day of the year plus when we are in a leap year, which is this year. So we have every day covered where we're commanded, fear not, but we're not just told like, just, hey, stop worrying. Just stop it. That's not what scripture tells us. It tells us, fear not for I'm with you. In other words, God meets us in our fears. God invites us to bring our fears to him. That's the only way we're going to resolve our fears. That's the only way we're going to make it through. Now, please don't hear me saying, I'm not saying, you know, throw wisdom out the door, don't wash your hands, um, you know, drink off the same cup. I'm not, I'm not, by all means, practice wisdom. What I'm trying to get at is the deeper root fear that I think we're all wrestling with. And the way we're going to resolve it is not by getting more, more information, more stuff, more protection. We're only going to resolve it by fixing our eyes on Jesus because realizing that he is with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. Remember when Jesus was telling stories and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who built his house upon the sand. And when the winds came and the storm came, it, it was demolished because it had no steady foundation. But the person who built their house upon the rock, when the winds came, when the storm came, their house, their house stood. And it was all based on what they were built on, right? The, the, the common denominator was the storm. So that is the reality of, of whatever this next three weeks, three months, three years unfolds for us, the storm comes no matter what. So if it's not coronavirus, it's cancer. If it's not cancer, it's loss of a job. If it's not loss of a job, it's the death of a loved one. See, and that doesn't mean that God isn't good. The reality is what we're witnessing, what we're seeing is exactly what the book of Hebrews is saying. Look again at the middle of verse 8. Now in putting everything 
in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. Here's the key. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Again, he is not to blame for the, God is not to blame for the pain, death, and destruction that we see in our world. The prince of the power of the air is. The demonic forces at work. And when you think about it, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say is, but he's, his time is limited. His time is running up. He, he is, Satan is practicing squatter's rights. You know what squatter's rights are? Like if there's a vacant house and someone goes and squats in it, like <laughs> takes up residence and acts as if the house is theirs. And then the owner of the home, once they discover that someone's living in their vacant home, has to go through all kinds of hoops to try and just get them evicted. I found this one story on a squatter. It's called Squatter Takes a Mansion. It says, and the article says this, if nothing else, you really have to admire Andre Barbosa's ambition. Rather than squatting in a rundown home, he selected a vacant $2.5 million mansion in Boca Raton, Florida. Barbosa moved into the 7,522-square-foot property with several other people. Soon after that, neighbors notified the police, but Barbosa was able to keep the authorities at bay for a time by filing a notice of adverse possession with the land records office. It took several months and an eviction proceeding, but eventually Barbosa was forced to leave the, the mansion. As for the owner, that happens to be Bank of America, which had foreclosed on the property about a year before Barbosa had moved into it. The bank is said to be pursuing a $15,000 claim against Barbosa to recover legal expenses, although it's hard to believe that a squatter has that kind of money. So think about it. We have handed over the keys, put this earth in subjection to the demonic realm. But Jesus came to start those eviction proceedings. Jesus came to deal with this squatter. Look at verse 9. But we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, Jesus is doing something about it. Jesus is not allowing the enemy to continue to squat on his property. And so it says he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Think about it. What did, he, what did the author of Hebrews remind us Psalm 8 said? 
verse 7. It says, you have made him for a little while lower, lower than age. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. See, Jesus is the one who's in charge. Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority. And he was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. They often, uh, in Philippians chapter 2, it says that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is why his name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus is Lord. That, that Jesus has a name that's exalted and lifted up higher than any name because Jesus was willing to lower himself. He was willing to do what was necessary to take on humanity. See, the first Adam, he failed. He handed over the keys. The second Adam, Jesus, he took the keys back. And eventually one day, he is coming to evict that squatter. Amen? Amen. That, that is the hope we have. That God has not abandoned us. That God has not left us. That's why we build our house on the rock of Jesus Christ. That's why in the midst of whatever trial comes at us, the only solution is not to try and scramble to protect myself, but rather to look to Jesus. To say, you are my confidence, you are my strength, you are my hope. When the world is freaking out, I'm going to be steady because I believe in you. And that gives us a testimony in this world like no other. Does it not? When the world around us is freaking out and we're like steady Eddie, right? They're like, hey, what? how come you're not freaking out with the rest of us? Oh, because I know who's actually in charge. I know who's actually the king. I know actually where I'm going. Where they, it doesn't matter. Remember how we jumped ahead? The one who has the power of, the death, of death is the devil. And, those, and, and Jesus is delivering those who have been subject to fear and slavery. Like, I'm not freaking out because ultimately my confidence is not in myself. It's in God who's with me. So we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. He cares. He didn't just, he didn't just say, don't worry about it. You're going you're gonna to come with me eventually. No, he entered into our pain. He was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does that mean, that he might taste death for everyone? Well, I think it could mean a few different things. One, we serve a risen Lord, do we not? He's not dead anymore. He tasted it. He took a sip of it. Yeah, I borrowed a grave for three days, and now I'm out. Right? Praise God. Like, he, we serve a risen Lord. He conquered our worst enemy, the thing we are most terrified of, death. He beat it. He was like the first one to beat it. And so we have hope that we who are in Christ will also beat death. So death is not the final word on you. It doesn't have to have rule and dominion over you. Scripture is trying to say, God, Jesus and what he did, his freed you from the slavery of fear of death. That's what God wants out of us. 
to be free, free from fear. That's what I want for myself. That's what I hope and pray for you, that as you leave here, you would be resolved to say, you know what? I am afraid, but I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus because I know he is with me. So he tasted death. He He was dead for three days. What else could it mean, though? I began thinking as I was preparing. And it really made me think of what happened to Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember Joseph? One of the the 12 sons of Jacob. And this particular son was daddy's favorite. And as a result, his older brothers hated him, sold him into slavery. He eventually um, became like one of the hired hands for a guy named Potiphar, an Egyptian official. And then his wife was kind of cray-cray and uh, tried to seduce him. And he, Joseph was like, no, I'm, I can't sin against God. Like, I'm not going to do that. So back away. And he tried to run from that kind of sexual immorality, which, side note, that's the only way to deal with so- sexual immorality is to run from it, to be terrified of it and to run. Um, but so as a result, she accused him of rape. He goes to jail. He eventually rises within the jail system and gets put in charge of the other inmates. And it's in that time where two prisoners were sent to jail from Pharaoh, the cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. And in there, they had a dream. And Joseph interpreted the dream for the cupbearer. The cupbearer basically was, it was told that he, in three days he would be released and would go back to putting the cup in Pharaoh's hand, okay? So just trying to paint a picture of what a cupbearer does for you, they, they are the ones responsible for tasting the wine before giving it to the king. So what happens if they taste the wine and they're fine and they hand it to the king? The king's fine, right? But if the cupbearer takes a drink, falls over dead, right? The 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 king is no longer going to be like, whoa! I'm not. He's not going to say, hey, let me take a swig of that. (laughs) He's going to realize that someone tried to to kill him. Someone tried to poison him. And so the the sole purpose of the cupbearer was to basically protect protect the one who is ultimately meant to drink from the cup. Now think about it. Jesus is our cupbearer. Only difference is, is that he knew there was poison in the cup. And he willingly drank it for us. Look at what Psalm 75 says. It's, it'll be up on the screen. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup foaming with wine, well mixed, and he pours it and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dreg, drain it down to the dregs. You know what dregs are? If you if you brew wine or beer, it's the sediment that collects at the bottom, the yeast and all the nasty stuff that just kind of settles down to the bottom. You're not supposed to drink that, right? And and this is saying that. In this cup of wine that was prepared for by the Lord, it's the cup of God's wrath. 
against a rebellious, sinful, broken world. So Jesus knew that poison was in that cup. That's why on the night in which he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in such anguish and he said, Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but yours. See, he, he knew what was in the cup, the cup of God's wrath directed at, towards humanity for their rebellious, sinful nature, for handing over the keys. And Jesus said, but not my will be done, but yours. Jesus tasted death for you. He drank the cup down to the dregs so that we wouldn't have to. So if you have any doubt, any fear about whether or not God is with you, that's why we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to fix our eyes on who's in charge. Because Scripture says that if God didn't withhold his best, meaning his son, how will he not also with the son freely give you all things? In other words, how will God not provide for what you're afraid of? If God didn't withhold his best, what makes you think he's going to withhold from you during this time of deep need, during this time of fear? That's why we can take confidence, because Jesus drank from the cup on our behalf so that we might have life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you were willing to pour out your wrath on your only begotten son, that you would accept that as a pleasing sacrifice on our behalf a sacrifice that was made once and for all. And that because Jesus drank from the cup, I get to live. We get to live. Thank you, Jesus, that you were willing, knowing what you were going to go through, knowing what you were going to have to do to save us. Thank you that you willingly laid down your life for us. What a great sign and display of love. Like, like none we've ever seen in all of our humanity, in all of our existence as people. We've never seen that kind of love. Thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the, the promised down payment. You are the promise that, God, you are with us. That when we are afraid, we can turn to you and put our trust in you, knowing that, God, you are with us. Lord, help us to be just a light in the midst of these turbulent times. Help us to be that example of the one who built their house on the rock as a result of the, the, the chaos and the turmoil going on in, in, in our culture. God, I pray that the Christians would be a light and a witness and that God, that Fernley would look different because of these men and women here today. Help us to just take great confidence in you and the fact that you are with us, and keep our eyes fixed on you. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if I could have those preparing communion to come and take place, as, Sim, as Tim said um, earlier in the gathering, um, what we're going to do is administer the communion to you. So we're going to hand you the cup, we're going to hand you the bread, um, and then, and really, as you think about it, take it back to your seat and realize Jesus, you, you are what I need to fix my eyes on. 
we have a tangible thing in our hands. The bread represents his body that was broken for you. The, the cup represents his blood that was poured out for you, that you could have a new life in God. That this, these elements represent God with us. So then during that time, before you consume it, just if whatever fears you're fear, feeling about the society, the current conditions we're in, give those to God in this moment and say, thank you, Jesus, that you that I can take trust right here, right now, because this represents that you are with me. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, this is a time where I want to invite you to come take your first communion. Put your faith in Jesus. Have this hope and confidence that I've been talking about. It's the best thing that you could ever do in your life, is giving your heart to Jesus and saying, you know what, I may not have it all figured out, but I want to give my life to you. I'm yours. If you're not ready to take that step, it's perfectly okay. I want to invite you to um, continue to, to discover who Jesus is through the pages of the Bible. So now let's rise as we will in the resurrection and meet our Lord at the table.